0: You're listening to the Men's Rea Podcast and this is the story of Sharon Collins. 6th of September 2006, Gurdie in the local station at Ennis County Clare received a call about a burglary at an office in Westgate Business Park. The office belonged to a building company, Downs and Howard, which mainly dealt in property investments. The company was owned by a local man, P.J. Howard, and his sons, and it was well known that he had amassed a small fortune in property. And the idea that there might have been a sum of money in the premises wasn't beyond belief. The call was not at all unusual. Burglary in rural Ireland is unfortunately commonplace. But when Detective Garda Jarlath Fahy arrived, he noticed that the crime scene was unusual. There were none of the common signs of burglary. No smashed-in doors or popped locks or broken windows. The locks to the office had been opened with keys – and the alarm had been deactivated by code the night before at 9.24pm. Reported stolen from the office were a laptop, a CPU of a desktop computer, and some odds and ends including computer cables and a poster of old Irish money. There had been a safe in the office, but it was untouched. Very strange indeed. The only CCTV of the business park had shown a car entering at around the time that the alarm had been disabled, but it didn't show who had been in the car, or where they had gone. The only people who had keys to the office were those who worked there, PJ, his sons, his long-term partner Sharon Collins, a handyman and a cleaner, and PJ and Sharon had been off in Spain on holidays where PJ spent the majority of his time. Weirder still, later that evening Detective Fahey received a phone call from Robert Howard saying that a strange man had turned up at his doorstep demanding money. What had started off as a simple burglary call took a very strange twist and from that point on one of the most bizarre stories in Irish criminal history played out. Just days after the burglary, S.M. Eid, an Egyptian national with an address in Las Vegas of all places, was arrested in Ennis. Along with him was Teresa Engel, an American who was but one of SME's wives. Robert Howard said that he was the man who had called to the house and demanded money. He said that Ede had told him that there was a contract out on his life and the lives of his brother and father too, and that if he handed over 100,000 euros, then the hit would be called off. The two Americans were taken into custody and very quickly Teresa Engel sloughed off any loyalty she had felt for her husband. She was willing to tell the Gardaí whatever they wanted to know. Over the next few months, with cooperation from Interpol and the FBI, computers were seized and retrieved from dump sites in both the US and Ireland and were analysed, with the internet browsing history as well as a series of emails being recovered. On the 26th of February 2007, Sharon Collins, the partner of P.J. Howard and supposed quote-unquote surrogate mother to his two grown sons, was arrested on foot of information gleaned from two gateway computers recovered in the course of an FBI investigation into S.M. Eid, which revealed this series of emails between the two where someone using the address lyingeyes98 at yahoo.ie had gone about arranging the contract killing of the Howard men. The emails had also mentioned a FedEx parcel sent to a Las Vegas address containing the down payment for the hit and when the Gardaí looked, Sharon had indeed made withdrawals from her credit union and bank accounts around that time, totaling €15,000. But Sharon vehemently denied that she had had any contact with Ede She admitted that she had sent the money, but insisted that it was because she was being blackmailed, possibly by a woman she had met online by the name of Maria Marconi. P.J. Howard wrote to the Director of Public Prosecutions at the time, James Hamilton, and asked that no charges be preferred against Sharon, as there was no way that she had anything to do with the murder plot. And he wasn't the only person to contact the DPP in relation to the case. Sharon Collins took it upon herself to write to the DPP three times on the 13th of March, the 28th of April and the 25th of May 2007. She wanted to lay out her case to him. The first letter she sent ran to 21 pages long and mainly detailed her life. She told him about how she had married when she was 19 and had had two sons but then separated and later divorced from her husband. She met PJ Howard in November of 1998, and she and her two sons had moved in before that Christmas. They lived together as man and wife, but never married because of PJ's concerns about his sons inheriting his business. The couple would have married but for that. It's important to note that in Ireland, a spouse is automatically entitled to one third of an estate, no matter what a will might say, so there's no way to disinherit a husband or wife. At first, they had just thought about having a prenuptial agreement drawn up, but this fell by the wayside when they were informed that these documents had no standing in Irish law. They thought then that they might just have a church wedding, as Sharon's first marriage had been annulled before their divorce, but again they were advised that even this could form the basis of a claim against PJ's estate. So Sharon settled for vows exchanged by the two of them in a church in Italy, with no officiant. And signed a document in their solicitor's office noting that they were aware that this was not a legal marriage and was to have no legal effect. The two, however, acted as husband and wife and threw a reception party for close friends on their return from Italy. Sharon said that their partnership was a happy one, but that they both had quote unquote abrasive personalities and that they had their disagreements. Sharon said that in December of 2005, she had come into contact with a woman online, Maria Marconi, and that Sharon had told her all about the various arguments in her and PJ's relationship. This correspondence had begun when Sharon filled out a pop up form in her internet browser about working from home. After signing up for that, she got lots of other emails about much the same thing and had been bombarded. But one email stuck out an offer. From a best selling author to help her write a novel. Again, Sharon filled out the form and sent it back, and soon after, she was contacted by Maria Marconi, who said that she was to be her mentor. Over time, Sharon and Maria developed a friendship of sorts, and Sharon began divulging more and more personal information to her. Sharon said she hadn't told PJ about Maria because she wanted to see how things went before she mentioned anything about her writing a book to him. In the meantime, she had a friendship and found the writing exercises therapeutic. Sharon said in the letter to the DPP that in and around April of 2006, she and PJ had argued and she had fired off an email to Maria calling him all sorts of names and saying that she hated him. Maria was sympathetic and the row blew over. Sharon also described how, in June of 2007, she met Maria Marconi when she took a holiday to Ireland. She was a woman in her late 40s with straight brown hair, sallow skin and about average height. They travelled all around the scenic areas of Clare together. Sharon had also let her use a computer in the Downs and Howard's office and a laptop at Ballybeg House. The next month, Maria got in touch to say that her house had been robbed. And her laptop had been stolen. this was when Sharon began receiving strange emails again. This time, they were from a man who said he'd kill p j and his sons for a hundred thousand euros, or failing that he'd kill them if she didn't pay. The man she said had all sorts of details about her life, and she was frightened. Then she was told that she had to hand over twenty thousand euros to prevent the letter that she had sent to Marconi being sent to PJ. She got phone calls and emails demanding the money and eventually she decided to send the money to try and make the problem go away. The evening after sending the money, on the 16th of August, she went to Spain hoping that it was over but instead she got phone calls and emails demanding more money from her. She went to an internet cafe to try and email Maria again but when she logged onto her account, she found that all of her emails, sent and received, as well as her contacts, had been deleted from the account. When she found out that the Downs and Howard office had been broken into and that the computers were stolen, she remembered that her password was saved to that machine and thought that maybe that was how her emails had been deleted. She told the DPP about how, when she had been brought in to speak to the guardie. They had read emails that they said were from her to a man named Tony Somebody. She said she recognized parts of the emails and thought that some of what she had written to Maria might have been lifted word for word and had been added to to make it look like Sharon was herself conspiring to have her partner murdered. Sharon's next two letters to the DPP were much shorter, coming in at only seven and six pages long, respectively one she had faxed to the office in Dublin from Spain where she was staying for the sake of expediency. In both she went through in detail how nonsensical her actions would have been had she done what the Gardaí were alleging. She wouldn't have used computers from her work or home, she wouldn't have used her real name or given personal information, she wouldn't have used such easily traceable money, All this she said added up to the fact that it was an impossibility that she could have committed this crime. All that had happened was that she was stupid, she was duped and blackmailed and she should have come forward about it much sooner and told the truth. She should have told PJ all about it when it happened. Anyway she said she had nothing to gain by the Howard's murders. She was not named in any will and would have had no claim on PJ's estate as they were not married. It would have been an insanely stupid time to do such a thing, she said, never mind the idea of having three members of the same family die in a short span of time, which is immediately suspicious. She would surely have been a suspect. Not only that, but the fact that all the trails in the Garda investigation led back to her was in and of itself suspicious, she said. Sharon said that her family would be destroyed if she was charged with this crime that PJ's sons didn't want their father supporting her or living with her anymore, and that the matter had caused a rift between them. Her own sons were distraught. She said that they might commit suicide if the matter was to go to court. She'd even considered that as an option for herself. Her family were distressed and her sisters and their husbands, people who held reputable jobs, would be tainted by their association with her. She begged the DPP not to lay charges and to believe her, that she had been stupid but that she had not set out to kill. On the 26th of April 2006, after a tip-off that came from America, likely from Teresa Engel, traces of ricin poison were found on a contact lens case in S.M. Eade's cell in Limerick Prison. This was the deadly poison that had been used in the now infamous assassination of George I. Markov in London and was the white powder contained in poison letters sent to the White House in 2003. Teresa alleged that she had assisted in the manufacture of the powder which Ede had brought into Ireland in a relatively large amount given its potency in the Contact Lens case. It was thought by Gardy that he had disposed of the powder, probably by flushing it down a toilet, but enough residue of the poison remained on the case to give a positive result when tested. On the 26th of June 2007, the district court sat in Kilkee, County Clare. This court is quiet. In fact, it only sits nine times a year. It usually saw cases like road traffic offences and offences that are the result of a heavy night's drinking, that sort of thing. But this morning, the little courthouse was mobbed with photographers and journalists. 44 year old Sharon Collins was to appear before the court. Not only that, it was also reported that an Egyptian national, with an address in Las Vegas of all places, was also appearing in court in Ennis. He'd been charged with extorting a hundred thousand euro, burglary, and handling stolen goods. But those charges were dropped that morning. And as Ede left the courtroom, he was immediately re arrested for conspiracy to murder. Ede was put in the back of a Garda car and driven 35 miles southwest to the little seaside resort town of Kilkee to join Sharon Collins before Mr. Justice Joseph Mangan. The two were brought before the court just after noon and were charged with conspiracy to murder P.J. Howard and his two grown sons, Robert and Niall. Sharon took her seat and Ede looked over at her. It was the moment that he had actually first seen Sharon Collins in person. The two had never met before. Evidence of the arrest was given and while Ede said nothing in relation to the charges when they were put to him, Collins said, quote, I never did that, end quote. The two were remanded in custody but Collins would later seek and be granted bail at the High Court. She was ordered to cease all contact with P.J. Howard, and had to make arrangements to move from ballybeg house ead made no such request for bail to be considered in his case and remained in prison for the time being both were granted legal aid the trial of collins and ead began on wednesday the 21st of may 2008 with jury selection in courtroom number one of the Four Courts building on Dublin's Quays. The state's case was described to the group and they were told that the trial was expected to last up to four weeks. Eight men and four women were selected and were asked to return to begin their duties the next morning in courtroom number 16 in the same complex but up the stairs on the second floor in the rafters of the building. The next day three legal teams arrived in the tiny courtroom. Collins had a local solicitor from Kilrush, Eugene O'Kelly, and he had instructed Paul O'Higgins, Senior Counsel, Michael Bowman, Bachelor of Law, and Joanne Kirby, Bachelor of Law. Ede was represented by John Casey, a solicitor from Ennis, and his counsel was David Sutton, Senior, and Michael Collins and Mark Nicholas as Junior Counsel. On the state side was Helen Keeley of the Office of the DPP, with Tom O'Connell, Senior Counsel, Una Ni Rafferty and Stephen Coughlin, Bachelors of Law. It's an indication of the complexity of the case that three barristers represented each party. Given that the state bears the full cost of this, as each accused had been granted legal aid in this case, this kind of legal lineup only occurs when the work involved necessitates this. So, in this small room were at least 12 lawyers the accused, Gardee involved in the investigation, family members of the parties concerned, and press. The place was packed, and Mr. Justice Roderick Murphy went about arranging a change of courtroom for the next week, as it was clear that number sixteen was not going to be sufficient. The witness list was ninety-five strong. Both Collins and Eed faced three charges of conspiracy to murder. Collins faced another three charges of soliciting Eed to murder the three men. Ede was charged with making an unwarranted demand for a €100,000 from Robert Howard, trespassing at the building that the Howards ran their business from, theft of a computer, laptop and other items from the same premises, and handling stolen goods, namely a stolen laptop and keys. The two accused pleaded not guilty to each charge. Another indication of the complexities and strangeness of the case was that when the prosecution opened their case, the statement lasted a whopping two and a half hours. Senior Counsel O'Connell introduced the jury to the Howard family, PJ who was a widower since 2003 but had been separated from his late wife before her death in 2003, and his two sons, Robert and Niall. They owned a property business which they ran from a building in Kilkee and Sharon Collins was PJ's partner, a good few years younger than him, and herself divorced with two sons. He told the court that evidence gathered in an extensive Garda investigation, which also saw help from the FBI in the US, would show that Sharon Collins had contacted Mr. Ede, going by the name of Tony Luciano, to murder the Howard men. She had used an email address, lyingeyes98 at yahoo.ie, which she accessed from computers in both the home she shared with PJ and from the office of the Howard's business, where she worked part-time in an administrative role. Sharon had also obtained a proxy marriage certificate from Mexico for herself and PJ without his knowledge, and she'd used it to apply for and receive an Irish passport in the name of Sharon Howard. O'Connell said that he would present evidence that Ede had broken into Downs and Howard, with keys posted to him, along with photos and money from Sharon, and stolen the computer which held evidence of Sharon's contact with him. There would also be evidence that Ede had first approached Robert to tell him that there was a plan to kill him, his brother, and his father, who was on holiday with Sharon in Spain at the time in August 2006. The first two witnesses in the case were members of the Garda Síochána who discussed maps of the Kilke area and pointed out the buildings involved in the alleged crimes. The next person on the stand was Robert Howard. He said that on the 26th of September 2006 he had gone to the office of his family business, Downs and Howard, and noticed that the door was unlocked and that the alarm was no longer set. When he got into the building, he saw that two computers were missing a Toshiba laptop and an Advent desktop, along with computer cables, a poster of old Irish money and a digital clock. Later that night, at about half ten, he got a phone call on his mobile when he was at home in Ballyboy from a man he didn't know, saying, I heard you lost a few computers. He told the caller that he had and the man said that he'd call round. About five minutes later, there was a knock on the door and when Robert opened it, he found a man calling himself Tony standing there with the Toshiba laptop. Robert brought the computer into the house and gave it to his brother who was in the back and told him to ring the gardie But more shocking things were to come. When Robert returned to the door and to Tony, the man said that he'd been hired to kill Robert, Nile, and their father for a €130,000. But Tony said he didn't want to carry out the hit, and good news, he wouldn't, so long as Robert paid them €100,000. Tony showed him photos that he had of the Howards and a piece of paper with directions to the various houses that they lived in. Robert had hoped that the Gardee were on their way as Tony went to leave, and he even tried to ring the man back but couldn't get through, and so he decided to try and follow the car that Tony was in when he left. But he lost him at a crossroads a short distance from his home. He described the man as about 5'11 with sallow skin, maybe in his mid to late 40s. He had on a baseball cap and glasses, and Robert said he sounded Algerian to him, not Italian like Tony said he was. At half twelve that night, Robert had another call from Tony asking if he had started to get the money together and there were a number of other calls the next day along the same lines they made plans to meet at a hotel in ennis for robert to hand the money over and of course robert told the gardie all about this at 20 to 6 that evening robert was sitting at the bar of the hotel when he got another call telling him to go and meet a woman near the bathrooms that she would be collecting the money from him Robert rang his guard contact to see what he should do and they told him to go and meet the woman. She had dark hair and wore a leather jacket and asked if he had the envelope when he walked in. But when a plainclothes garda walked past where they were standing, she took off. Robert heard no more from Tony after that. Then Robert was asked by counsel if he and his brother socialised with Sharon Collins, to which he responded that they did. He was then asked if he had set up and used the email address, lyingeyes98, which he denied. He was asked about the name associated with that account, B. Lyons. He responded that his father's partner, after his initial separation from his wife, had been named Bernie Lyons, and that she had died in 1998, just before PJ and Sharon had gotten together. But Robert said he had nothing to do with that account. His only email address was the one he had through work. He also told the court that his father had given him a document that stated he had not married Sharon in Italy in 2005, despite the wedding reception party that they had thrown on their return from that trip. The morning Sharon Collins had been arrested the 26th of February 2007, Robert was told by his father that the Gardee had permission to search Ballybeg House and to take away anything that they wanted. Next to the stand was Robert's brother, Niall. He told the court how he and Robert had attempted to follow Tony's car but had lost him. He said that he had not set up the Lying Eyes account and that Sharon had been with his father since 1998. He agreed with the defence barrister that Sharon had taken care of his father when he was ill and that for all intents and purposes they appeared to be married. Niall had only spent 35 minutes on the stand before the next witness, Brian Buckley, a 23 year old soldier from Dublin, took his seat. He told the court that in June 2006, while he was looking for cheat codes for a computer game he was playing, called Hitman, he had come across the website hitmanforhire.net. He said the page looked unprofessional and thought it was a joke, but a few weeks later he filled out the contact form using a fake name of Will Buckemer. Then, on the 10th of August, he received an email in response to the form he'd filled out. It was from an email of judas69 at gmail.com. It was from someone calling themselves Tony Luciano, and it said that he had a job for Brian, two men in Ireland and one in Spain. The man said he'd call and did in fact ring Brian, but each time the soldier said that he'd gotten the wrong number. Another email followed two weeks later, asking Brian to get a hold of poison for him. Tony said he'd owe the guy a favour. Buckley thought the whole thing was a joke, really. He hadn't taken hitmanforhire.net seriously, or the inquiries about getting his help to poison three men. It just didn't seem real, despite the phone calls he'd received. On the 3rd of June, the 7th day of the trial, Garda evidence of the surveillance operation that had been in place on the 27th of September 2006 in the Queen's Hotel in Ennis, where Robert was to meet Tony and the woman to hand over the blackmail money was given. The operation had 10 guardie in total involved. Detective Garda Jarlath Fahi had been in touch with Robert Howard throughout, and was one of eight Guardi stationed around the hotel, to take in all approaches to it. Meanwhile, inside the hotel, two female Gardaí stayed inside at the bar, keeping an eye on Robert, who appeared ever increasingly nervous. Then a woman dressed in jeans and a leather jacket with frizzy black hair approached him. This was Theresa Engel. One of the guardies headed out after them towards the toilets and passed them standing in the hall outside of the ladies as she went in. She stayed there for a while and then followed the woman out. Engel was then seen talking to a man matching the description of Tony given by Robert. He was wearing jeans and a tan jacket. After that, she headed off in a different direction, and the man headed to a bar directly across from the hotel. The man in the tan jacket was observed by Gardie stationed around the hotel, and once he was inside the bar, he was approached and arrested by Detective Garda Jarla Fahi. The man gave his name as S.M. Eid, and said that he was on holidays in Ireland and staying at Two Mile Inn Hotel in Limerick. He said he had a rental car which he'd parked somewhere over the other side of town, but he wasn't sure where. That evening at Ennis Garda station, SM Eade lined up with eight other men for an identification parade. Robert and the Nile were brought into the room separately, and each picked Ede out as the man who'd called himself Tony. In Cross, however, Michael Collins pressed the Garda sergeant who had arranged things that night. He questioned as to why Ede had been the only man in his 50s and the only man with a moustache in the lineup. Surely Ede would have stuck out like a sore thumb, he said. Sergeant McMahon responded that these were the volunteers available to them and that he didn't think Ede stuck out and that Ede had not objected at the time either. The jury also heard from the Gardee who had searched Ede's room in the inn that he was staying at in Limerick. From there, they seized a white tracksuit top, a baseball hat with US Open 2000 on the front, computer cables, a digital clock, a poster of old Irish money, two keys, two wigs, one black and blonde, a pair of black leather gloves, a balaclava, and a plastic Halloween mask. On the ninth day of the trial, P.J. Howard was called to the witness box by the prosecution. He had stood by Sharon long after the Gardaí began investigating her for conspiracy and soliciting a murder. So it was not a huge surprise when he told the court that he had no idea why Sharon would do any of this. He said she wasn't a greedy woman, that she had never asked him for anything and that she had cared for him when he was ill. He told the court how Sharon had told him about being blackmailed by a woman named Maria Marconi just a few days after the break-in at the office. He'd never heard of her up until that point. He was asked about an email address, Howard at aircom.net, which had been set up in 2005. PJ told the court that this was not his email address. The one he used was pj at downsandhoward.com. The aircom address had been used to contact someone at the Mexican proxy marriage service that Sharon had obtained her marriage certificate from. PJ, of course, had never been to Mexico and had never agreed to a proxy marriage, yet Sharon Collins had paid over $12,000 to obtain a certificate. He was also asked if Sharon Collins had ever been to Las Vegas, to which he responded that she had, in May or June of 2007. PJ had sent her over there with instructions to hire a private investigator to look for Maria Marconi, but no signs of the mysterious pen pal were ever found. Mr. Howard told the court that he had not purchased the two flights from Vegas to Shannon Airport that appeared on his American Express credit card and matched up with the flights that Ede and Engel took. He said that Sharon had his credit card details and in fact ensured that that bill was paid. He said that she'd kept those details in her purse which was stolen in Spain in August or September of 2006. He believed the woman who stole the purse was Teresa Engel. After finishing his testimony, P.J. Howard left the stand and crossed the courtroom where he gave Sharon a kiss on the lips. He left the courtroom and did not attend the rest of the trial. John Keating, a builder from Limerick, was called by the prosecution on the 5th of June. He had been called to give evidence that he had gotten a call from the Howards to change the locks at Downs and Howard premises at the end of September 2006. On cross-examination however he went on to tell a story about how on the 16th of August he had effectively spent the day with Sharon Collins. He said that he had called to Ballybeg House at about half 10 that morning where he and Sharon had discussed a leak in the house and the possibility of building a conservatory. The two then drove to Collins's mother's house and again discussed building jobs to be done there. They went to Collins's former residence where she wanted to discuss building two self-contained apartments in the back and then they went to a tile shop to look at tiles for a house Niall Howard was building at the time. Finally, they went to the Downs and Howard office where Sharon went inside for five or ten minutes. The two then went back to Ballybeg House, getting there just before one o'clock. He said he was sure of the date because he had only just returned from a trip to the UK, two days before. If Keating's testimony was correct then this meant that there would be doubt as to whether Sharon Collins could have sent the emails from the lying eyes account to Ede on the 16th. The prosecution objected to this evidence saying the defence was trying to submit alibi evidence and that the guardie had had no notice of it and hadn't been able to investigate. The judge agreed, saying that the Guardi should have time to look into the matter and present evidence of it to the prosecution in order to properly examine the witness. Keating's evidence was again mentioned on the 30th of June. O'Connell said that the diary Keating had used to recount his movements on the 16th of August had three different ink types used on that day, and on top of that, Stenoline, the ferry service that Keating had said he'd used to travel to and from the UK, had no record of this journey. Keating was called back to the stand and told the jury that he had in fact known Sharon Collins since 1995. She'd introduced him to the Howards and had done a lot of work for that family. He was also asked what it was that had prompted him to remember the events of the 16th of August. He said that Sharon Collins' son, Gary, had rung him up and asked if he could remember that date. Keating had checked his diary, which he kept in his van, and found the records of his day with Sharon. He was asked directly by the prosecution senior counsel if he'd made up the entries and asked why there was evidence of three different inks being used. Keating vehemently denied making up the entries and said that there were a load of different pens in his van and he would use any number of them to make entries into his diary. O'Connell put it to him that Steneline had no record of his journey and to that John responded that he had himself contacted Steneline and had been told that, due to a new computer system in place, they were not able to get the records of travel on that date. Furthermore, he complained to the court that he had felt intimidated after he had given evidence before, and that a guarda had told him she'd see him in handcuffs. The guarda in question said that she'd been joking while she was showing witnesses to another room, but Keating insisted that he was frightened of being arrested after being questioned for three hours by the guardee. On the 9th of June, before the jury took its place back in the box, counsel for Collins made a submission to the judge. He said that there was a problem with the evidence in relation to the ricin. It had initially been tested by the Irish Army, but was then sent over to the UK for further testing, at which point the contact lens case that had contained it had undergone irrigation. This meant that the sample was destroyed. The defense had not been informed of this until May and had had no opportunity to test the substance themselves. Counsel for Ede agreed with what had been presented to the judge. The next morning, Justice Murphy said that the evidence should have in fact been made available for testing by the defense. He said that Ede had been entitled to have the physical evidence maintained until the trial and on that basis, the test results could not be used in evidence. This was hugely problematic. The existence of the Rison evidence had been mentioned in the state's opening argument and if it was no longer to be allowed then the jury would have to be discharged. Not only that it was not clear that the state could make out a case against both Collins and Ede if the Rison was out. As the lawyers huddled in conference in the round hall of the four courts Sharon Collins was seen laughing and smiling with her solicitor and her sons She seemed to be optimistic that this meant an end to the whole affair and that the state's case against her would collapse. When the court sat again 20 minutes later, both defence counsels asked for the jury to be discharged, which would mean the collapse of the trial. However, O'Connell for the state made an application to the judge to allow him to make inquiries of the lab in the UK to see if in fact no further tests were possible, and this was granted. The next day, with the jury still absent from the courtroom, Mr. O'Connell requested that Superintendent Scanlon from the Irish Army be allowed to give evidence as to the circumstances of the gathering of the rice and evidence. He took to the stand that afternoon and described how he had been called to deal with a suspect substance in Limerick Prison. Every care had been taken to ensure the safety of both prison staff and inmates – They decided that they would wait until evening lockdown to ensure that the prisoners were safe and secure before entering Eid's cell and that the need to secure any potential harmful substance and the health and safety of the public was balanced. An emergency ordinance disposal team had entered the cell in biological suits. Tests were carried out in the prison but it was made clear that they were only provisional tests and that the sample would have to undergo further testing. The contact case was rushed to a lab in the UK which was experienced in ricin testing for the purpose of identifying it with certainty. When it was put to him that no effort had been made to preserve the evidence for later testing, Superintendent Scanlon said that they had sent the sample to the place that did such things for the English courts and he presumed at the time that everything would be done properly he was not really concerned with the preservation of evidence at that point and just took it that best practice would be followed by the lab he had sent the contact lens case to. Joanna Preet and Stephen Crippen from the UK lab in Middlesex also took the stand. Ms Preet said that she had received the package containing the case with suspected ricin in it late on the evening it had been seized from the prison. It had been placed in a safety cabinet unpackaged and irrigated that night with the testing being carried out at 1:40 a.m. the results were ready the next morning at 8:40 a.m. there was a result of strong positive of the presence of ricin in the tested sample when asked to describe ricin for the benefit of the judge mr crippen said that it was one of the most toxic compounds known to man and was highly dangerous after this testimony mr o'connell for the prosecution addressed the court again he said in relation to Ms Collins that she had not yet been charged with anything when the testing was carried out and that as such she couldn't have been given notice of that at the time, so the order could not therefore be said to apply in her case. With regards to Mr Eade, the prison service and the army had taken the steps necessary for public safety to deal with an extremely dangerous substance found in the prison. This being the case, There were exceptional and extraordinary circumstances in this case, which meant that Ede and his legal team could not be notified of the testing. Mr. Justice Murphy considered the matter at length, but in the end decided that these were indeed extraordinary circumstances, and that the Ryson evidence would therefore be allowed in after all. The jury was recalled, and evidence from the army officer who had carried out the field testing, as well as the UK lab technicians, was heard again. This time for the benefit of the jury. On Friday, the 13th of June, more evidence about the ricin was heard. FBI agent Ingrid Satilo gave evidence that S.M. Eade was suspected in the production of ricin after she had visited his house in the course of an investigation into fraud. She had seen a large drama of acetone, as well as a blender and some coffee filters with a white powder in them. But she was from the L.A. office and had no jurisdiction in the state of nevada she had however forwarded her concerns to the local office the day before on thursday the 12th of june teresa engel had taken to the stand first off it was established that she had been granted immunity from prosecution in this case in return for her giving evidence and that she had spoken to her own lawyers in the us before agreeing to return to ireland for the trial they went through her background She was from Ohio and she had met Ede in 2003 or 2004 at a casino in Detroit, near to where she lived at the time. In June 2006, she moved to Las Vegas to live with him, where they got married. She, SM, and another woman named Lisa Ede all lived together. Lisa Ede was SM's first wife. When asked if she had ever been to Ireland before, Teresa said that she had. She described how, after receiving emails on his hitmanforhire.net website from Sharon, there was an assassination arranged for PJ Howard and his two sons. There had been a number of emails that she saw and a number of phone calls which she heard between Ede, using the name Tony Luciano, and Sharon, who used the Lying Eyes account. She recalled that a payment of about 15,000 euro in cash had been delivered to the house and signed for by Lisa. In the end of August, she had said she had travelled to Ireland alone to meet with Ede's friend, Ashraf Garbia, also known as Ash. She met him in Ennis, where she was staying, and had gone with him to check out the business stands in Howard. Ash had wanted to check it out himself because he had been asked by Ede to take care of killing the two Howard sons for him. Teresa said he'd had a plan to put poison into some alcohol, but had realised that the plan probably wouldn't work and so he'd left teresa then decided to head on to spain where sharon had said pj would be sharon had also left directions to the apartment that pj owned as well as directions to the boat that he had and had even left keys in an envelope at a hotel for teresa to pick up she sat in a restaurant near to the apartment to see if she could catch sight of pj and sharon while she was there but she said that then she started to feel unwell and so she travelled back to ireland after that, she went back to the States and went over her whole trip with Eid. She said he was furious that the hit hadn't been carried out and went about sorting a visa for himself so that he could carry out the job. A month later, Teresa said she was back to Ireland and this time Eid went with her. Then Teresa described in a rather matter-of-fact way how she and Ede had made ricin to take with them to commit the murders. She said that they had bought acetone, castor beans and another ingredient that she couldn't remember to make it and described how they had mixed it all up and sieved it and dried it to make the poison, which they then put into a contact lens case and brought to Ireland with them. When they got to Ireland, they followed the instructions that they had been given and took keys and an alarm code with them to the Downs and Howard offices. They easily broke in and took the items they were later found with. But she said Essam couldn't get in touch with Sharon and was getting annoyed, so he decided to go to Robert and ask him to buy out the hit. Then she told her version of them going to Robert's house and then meeting in the hotel in Ennis. She had been arrested in a car park after leaving the Queen's hotel in Ennis when she had returned to their rental. She said she had thrown away the keys to the apartment in Spain by wrapping them in a tissue and dumping them in a bin in the ladies' toilets when she was brought to court in Ennis. It turned out that while Teresa was giving evidence under an immunity agreement in Ireland, she was awaiting sentence for an attempted extortion in LA. She and Ede had told a woman that her partner's ex had taken out a hit on her, and that she'd be killed if she didn't send Ede $20,000. To this charge, Teresa pleaded guilty and was eventually, in 2008, sentenced to eight months. The story behind this sounds familiar. Of course, rather than pay out the money that had been demanded of her, this woman, Anne Royston, had called the cops. It turned out that the ex-girlfriend had paid out $17,000 after finding Ede on his incredibly amateurish hitmanforhire.net website. On July 1st, the prosecution took a break to allow for evidence to be presented by the defence by agreement. The witnesses called to the stand were due to leave the country later that day, and were accommodated. It was a popular Irish radio personality, Jerry Ryan, and his producer, Siobhan Hoff. Their evidence was brief, and both basically just stated that neither of them had seen any email from Sharon Collins' Aircom address, and that the show that they produced received over two thousand emails per month. This strange appearance was in relation to evidence that had been given nearly two weeks before, on the seventeenth of June, Garda evidence was that, recovered from the iridium laptop that was seized in Ballybeg House, there was an email to Jerry Ryan's radio show which detailed complaints that Sharon had about her partner. She wrote in the email that he went to sex workers and what she called transvestites and had asked her to do things she was uncomfortable with sexually. She went on to say that he would suffer from terrible moods if he didn't get his way with things and that she couldn't tolerate it anymore but that she was afraid to leave him. She said she was writing to the show to possibly give herself the push she needed to make the break. The implication of this evidence being that either these things were true and Sharon was unhappy in her relationship, which provided a motive for murder, or Sharon was lying and wasn't above sullying her partner's reputation in an attempt to gain sympathy for herself. Maybe Sharon Collins wasn't what she seemed. In his summing up, the prosecution would say that it was entirely unnecessary and irrelevant to have Jerry Ryan come in, and that it was a stunt for Sharon Collins to get more attention. The defence for Collins argued that as the email was only partially recovered, it was necessary to at least attempt to find out what had become of the letter and if anyone in RTE had seen it, given that Sharon said that the rest of the letter gave more context for what she had written. That failing to fully recover the text, the prosecution had pushed the defense to the effort of bringing in the broadcaster. Later that same day, Tuesday, the first of July, the moment that the press and public had awaited finally arrived. Sharon Collins had been pictured around the forecourts, smartly dressed, confident and self-assured looking, and she was finally set to take to the witness box in her own defense. Her examination by her own lawyer went smoothly. She smiled as she recalled her whereabouts on the 16th of August 2006 and outlined her movements with the builder John Keating and having had lunch with her mother. She recalled that she'd been packing for a trip to Spain that day also. She denied soliciting the murder of her partner and his children or having conspired point blank. This questioning lasted less than 10 minutes. Then Una Nerafferty for the state took to her feet to cross-examine Collins. There was no messing about, and the junior council got straight to the point. She happened to remember a lot about the 16th of August, didn't she? Sharon insisted that she remembered. She had been to the pilgrimage site, Loch Derg, until the 9th, and her mother had recalled Keating calling out to her house that day too. Nerafferty put it to Sharon that this was a total fabrication. Collins denied this. Then they moved on to discuss the 15,000 euro that had been sent to an address in America. Collins scoffed at the idea that it had been a down payment on a hit. She would have known well that that sum of money would have been traceable. She insisted that it had been about blackmail and that that was what she had told the Gardee. She was questioned about her interactions with a woman known to her as Maria Marconi, which the state asserted was a person made up to cover Sharon's own actions of arranging the break-in at the office and the subsequent failed assassination attempt. Collins denied this. Sharon was questioned about the phone calls that had been made about that time and insisted that the calls to and from the number associated with SM Ede had, to her knowledge, been calls with a woman, not Eid. She dealt well with her cross-examination that day, maintaining her cool composure and making time to smile at the jury apologetically as she insisted that she didn't know what had happened, who Ede was, or who the emails had belonged to. The next day, however, was another story. When Sharon Collins arrived, she was drawn and lacked the confidence she had shown the previous day. Nirafferty Rafferty again grilled her on her whereabouts at the time of the Lying Eyes email sent on the 16th of August, asking her to account for how her own personal email address had been accessed minutes later from the same computer. Could she explain the searches on her laptop from Ballybeg House about inheritance, mortgages and women's aid? How did she explain the FedEx tracking number for her package of 15,000 euro being used minutes after interactions between Lying Eyes and Hitman? What had been the purpose of the letter she had written to Jerry Ryan? Were her accusations in the letter of her husband's proclivities and foul humours true? All Sharon had in response to these questions was that she didn't know, she wasn't there, and she could only speak to what had happened to her. She was also asked what she had hoped to achieve by sending her letters to the DPP against her solicitor's advice. Sharon said that she had been trying to put her side of the story across, but New Rafferty asserted that it had been an attempt to manipulate the office, just like she had manipulated those around her, and just like she was trying to manipulate the jury by her demeanor in court and on the witness stand collins of course vehemently denied this yet again and said that she and her family had been through hell because of these false allegations of solicitation and conspiracy but her lack of confidence led to a crack in that demeanor noted by the state's team and at one point that morning sharon collins lost her composure on the stand and wept the judge offered her a break but she decided to carry on and her questioning finished just before lunch She never regained the confidence that she had shown earlier in the trial and continued to weep as she was comforted by her sons when she returned to her seat. The builder John Keating was again called on the 3rd of July. He had gone to the Steneline offices directly after giving evidence to the court on the 30th to look for records of his travel. He was told that they didn't keep records over 12 months and was given a number in the UK to call. They eventually got in touch with Stenoline head offices in Sweden who confirmed that John Keating had gotten loyalty points on his Stenoline card for the journey he described to the court the first time he was in the witness box. Those points were only awarded upon boarding the ferry. John Keating had travelled on those days and the prosecution ended up having to apologise to him for implying that he was lying about it. Ede did not take the stand himself, but the memos from his guard at interviews were read for the record. In them, he initially said that he was on holidays to see Sharon with whom he was having an affair, or had had an affair with for a number of years. But very soon after, he went back on himself and denied that this was the case, saying he'd never met Sharon or spoken to her or had emails from her, and he didn't know Robert or Niall or PJ Howard. He said he'd never gotten the picture of the Howards, and that he'd never manufactured ricin or smuggled it into the country. He was a hard working man, and furthermore, who in their ripe mind would agree to kill an entire family for such a small sum of money? He told the Gardie he had his own family to think of. <laughs> Closing statements began on the 3rd of July with Una Ni Rafferty taking to her feet again to summarise the state's case. She said that the jury had sat through a huge amount of evidence and that it was now her job to draw it all together for them. She highlighted that Collins was linked to the three computers used in setting up the Lying Eyes account and arranging the FedEx shipment of 15,000 euros to Las Vegas. She said that the activity on the Lying Eyes account could be linked in time to internet searches made by Sharon Collins and her logging into her own personal email account. Phone logs linked Sharon Collins' mobile and the Ballybeg House landline to calls from Eid. Plane tickets had been purchased for Eid and Engel on PJ Howard's credit card. The language in the emails to Hitman mirrored that used by Collins in her letters to the DPP – there was absolutely no trace of the mysterious Maria Marconi. Pictures of the Howards had been sent to the States, as well as keys to access their business premises. Neerafferty pressed that Collins had gone about attempting to arrange the murder of three men, and that Ede had been identified by Robert and Nile as the man who had called to their house, asking to be paid off to stop the hit that had been taken out on them. She said that there were of course issues with identification evidence and that that should be considered by the jury but she asserted that she had no doubt that they would find that Collins and Ede were guilty. The idea that this whole thing had been a scheme to defraud money from Sharon was belied by the fact that Ede had contacted a person in Ireland, Brian Buckley, the man who was in the Irish army, to try and farm out the hit to a local man and by the fact that Ede had arrived into Ireland with the deadly poison ricin. She said that the circumstances of these crimes was farcical, and that Collins, Ede, and Engel were fools, but they were dangerous fools nonetheless. Next, Michael Bowman for Collins addressed the court. He said that the Garda investigation had been blinkered, and said that they only investigated things that they thought made his client look guilty. He said that phone records that showed calls from Ballybeg House while Collins and Howard were away were never looked into despite the fact that it would seem that because of them someone else was in the house. He said that there were calls from the Downs and Howard offices to Sharon's phone when she was supposedly there according to the computer data that had been collected. No one had bothered to go through all those phone records and all those computer logs but he said that if they had, it would have shown up many holes in the state's case. Their own witness, John Keating, when he said something that suited the defence was torn to pieces and subject to garda scrutiny. Sharon had also taken the stand and effectively humiliated her whole family. And why would she do that if she was guilty? The next day, Eads lawyer David Sutton told the jury in his closing that the whole affair had been a shakedown, not a murder plot. He questioned the reliability of the identity parade that had been held and said that there had been no attempt to find out exactly who this Tony Luciano had been. He questioned how the state thought it was possible for Ede to have gotten deadly ricin poison into Limerick Prison given the searches that were in place for inmates and also pointed out that the army commandant who tested the material had worn only gloves not the full bio suits that those who had entered the cell had worn. He said that this was indicative of the fact that the material that they had tested wasn't at all the highly deadly material that they were being led to believe that it was. He called the Hitman for Hire website a clownish attempt, one that only a fool would be duped by, and one that was only ever intended to dupe fools. Sharon Collins was the state's real target, and Ede, his client, was being brought along for the ride to connect all the dots. But he insisted there was absolutely no proof that his client had ever really intended to kill P.J. Howard or his sons. By the afternoon of Friday, the 4th of July, Mr. Justice Murphy's summing up began. It continued into the next Monday as he went over all the evidence that had been presented in the previous weeks and took a total of six hours. He advised the jury of the rules regarding conspiracy and that they had to find that there was at least two people involved in a plan to commit a crime and that if there was any doubt in their minds in relation to the evidence, that this benefit should be given to the defendants. With that, the eight men and four women retired, but the courtroom did not empty. Both defence teams had a number of requisitions to make regarding what they deemed deficiencies in the summing up and instructions. Collins' counsel said that the accomplice warning was not strong enough, that Teresa Engels had given the uncorroborated evidence of an accomplice and that this should be approached with care. He also wanted a stronger charge in relation to the conspiracy charge, saying that it was all or nothing in relation to this and that that had to be made clear to the jury. Eads' counsel pointed out that his client had exercised his right to silence and that the jury should have been informed to draw no inferences from this, and he also wanted to ensure that the jury considered Engel's evidence in light of the plea deal she had in the States with the FBI. Meanwhile, the jury had requested access to a number of exhibits and debated for a few hours more that evening before being sent to a nearby hotel for the night. The next morning, Mr Justice Murphy recharged the jury in relation to the matters that had been brought up the afternoon before, and then deliberations began again. There were a number of other requests for exhibits by the jury which were delivered to them, with the exception of P.J. Howard's letter to the DPP, in which he stated that Collins should not be charged in March 2007, as this was referenced in the trial but not submitted as evidence, as well as evidence regarding pictures taken by the FBI agent of Eid's home and logs of PayPal transactions that were again referenced in testimony but had no documentation submitted as evidence in the trial. After another long day, the jury were sent back to the hotel with instructions from the judge that they were to not deliberate further. In a somewhat stereotypical Irish fashion, the judge told them to relax and to have a drink because they deserved it. Pretty much everyone knew that they were nearing the end of the whole thing as there was only one more day left before a number of members of the jury were due to leave the country for family holidays and would be unavailable. A decision would have to come the next day. And after a few hours more of discussion, it did. The jury filed into the courtroom in the early afternoon and delivered their verdicts on seven charges. Collins had been found guilty of three charges relating to soliciting the murders of Robert, Nile and PJ Howard. Ede had been found guilty of charges relating to demanding 100,000 euros from Robert Howard to cancel the contract killing of Robert, Neil, and PJ and not guilty of the burglary of the Downs and Howard office. Sharon broke down in tears as the jury returned to deliberate further on the outstanding charges. By 3pm, the jurors returned and announced that they had found Sharon Collins guilty of the conspiracy to murder counts, but by 20 to 6 that evening, after nearly 11 hours total of deliberations, ultimately they could not reach a decision regarding the guilt or innocence of SM Ede on those counts. Both were remanded in custody to await sentencing and for the first time, Sharon Collins was taken away to jail. On Monday the 5th of November, both Collins and Ede appeared again before the courts for sentencing. Sharon Collins continued to protest her innocence as she stood before the judge once more, which also heard character references for her from the Bishop of Killaloe, the Mayor of Ennis and the local Fianna Fale County Councillor. In his letter, the bishop, Dr. Willie Walsh, said that he didn't believe an extended custodial sentence would serve the common good or achieve any sort of restorative justice. A psychometric report on Collins was also presented by Brian Glanville, who met Sharon twice in the previous September. He said of her that she had a, quote, passive, detached, but dependent personality, which could lead to conflicts in relationships, and that she also craved security he said she suffered from anxiety and depression. PJ Howard addressed Mr Justice Murphy as well in a victim impact statement and said that he still supported Sharon and that he still didn't believe that she could have plotted to kill him in that way. Paul O'Higgins, who was her senior counsel, criticised the media coverage of his client and the trial, which he said had been sensational in nature. Tom O'Connell, again for the DPP, asked the judge to consider a sentence on the higher end of the scale. Collins could have been sentenced to 10 years for each of the three soliciting murder charges. But Justice Murphy said that he took into account the fact that Sharon Collins had had no previous criminal record and sentenced her to six years in total for her crimes. Sharon looked relieved and had cried when Howard spoke of his continuing support of her. At the sentencing, Ede was his usual relaxed self and took his six-year sentence in his stride. It was backdated to September 2006 when he had first been remanded in custody. She was returned to her room in the Doka Centre, the women's section of Mountjoy Prison in Dublin City Centre, and Ede went back to his own jail cell. In March 2010, Sharon Collins' appeal against her conviction made its way to court where her legal team argued that the rice evidence should never have been allowed in, and that the defence had had too short of notice of the inclusion of Theresa Engel as state's witness before the trial. The state had decided in the end not to stand over the conspiracy convictions, given that Ede had not also been convicted of this charge, and of course it takes two, but they were standing over the charges of soliciting murder. At the same time, an appeal by Ede regarding the severity of his sentence was heard. But this was ultimately dismissed, the judge noting that six years had actually been on the very low end of the allowed sentencing term for demanding money with menace and that it was a punishment that fit his crime. Ultimately, Sharon Collins' appeal was dismissed in full in October of 2011. P.J. Howard had reportedly spent close to €200,000 on private investigators trying to gather new evidence to use in the appeal to clear Sharon's name, to no avail. Either way, she was released only a year later, in September of 2012. In 2015, Sharon Collins gave an interview to the Irish Independent after she moved to Belfast in Northern Ireland. She still maintained her innocence and said that she considered writing a book to put out her side of the story but decided that she preferred to keep a low profile and wanted to try and keep living a quiet life. She had trained in sports massage therapy while she was in the Doka Centre and she worked as a masseuse part-time at that stage. She and PJ had split shortly after her release from prison. She said that it ended amicably and that they realised the relationship had just reached its natural end. In 2016, SM Ede gave an interview to The Sunday World He had returned to his native Egypt, where he was now a cattle farmer, and had some harsh words for Sharon Collins. He spoke in relation to her statement that everybody deserves a second chance, saying that that applies only to people who admit what they have done. He had been extradited back to the States while in custody, as he faced extortion charges there, and on release had attempted to put his life back together. He had lived in the US for 32 years, but after becoming ill and having no one visit him in hospital, He knew that his life there was over and so decided to return to Egypt. He said of Sharon quote, she knows what she did and she knows she didn't tell the truth. She has never faced up to her actions. I don't know what kind of person that makes her. I would call her a money lover who deserves what she gets and didn't get what she deserved. End quote. This was a crime very much of its time. It's hard to believe that the supposedly intelligent Sharon Collins was taken in by the basic web page with cliched clip art and an on-the-nose domain name. But she considered herself a bit of a computer expert, having taken a course in 1982. But the computers of 2006 were a different beast altogether, and metadata, cell site data, browsing logs and so on were just about to become ubiquitous. None of us these days have any compunction about the fact that a device in our pocket knows our every move, our every keystroke, the various ideas that flash across our minds as we google away. But we were at the very beginning of that back then. But Sharon was charming and she thought that she'd get away with it. The whole affair reads like a pulpy thriller and maybe she was a bored housewife getting a kick out of it until it seemed like it really might happen and that she really might end up in the possession of a multi-million euro properties portfolio. Ede later said that he regretted not getting rid of the computers and carrying out the hit like he was supposed to, and that if he had, maybe they'd all have gotten away with it. And the Gardee seemed to agree with him after the fact. There would have been no way that they would have looked as far as Las Vegas for a hitman, when we have enough people involved in criminality here to suspect. Today, Sharon Coote, as she's known, spends her time in ballroom and salsa classes in Belfast and is trying to start over. She says she wants to live a simple, quiet life, which doesn't really jive with how the prosecution made her out in trial, nor with the interviews she seems to like to give these days. But she teaches us a lesson that bears repeating. Be careful of your browser history. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Men's Rea, a true crime podcast. If you like what you heard, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review, or tell a friend. It really is the easiest way to support your favorite podcasts. A particular thank you this week goes out to Eamon Brady, one of our top-tier patrons, who chose this subject for you guys to hear, and who kindly introduced the topic up top. It's great to not be the only one doing the talking, and I had so much fun figuring out a topic with you, Eamon, and then covering it. So, particularly to you, I hope you enjoyed it, and thank you so much. I want to take the time to wish you all a happy holidays, whatever you celebrate, and best wishes for a new year from everyone in the mens household. I hope 2019 is a happy and prosperous year for you all. Next time we have our second episode chosen by one of our lovely patrons, And again, it's a very special one. It's our first trip to the other side of the Atlantic, and a story you may now be familiar with from Netflix. But which one? This podcast is researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources can be found in the show notes or by visiting our website, www.mensreapod.com. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do.